Welcome to What Your GP Doesn't Tell You, the podcast for both doctors and patients with me, Liz Tucker. This week, I'm talking to Kim Watzak, whose life was changed forever on the tragic day in 2003 when her husband, Woody, killed himself. Several weeks earlier, Woody had been prescribed the SSRI antidepressant drug Zoloft for his insomnia. Its generic name is Cetralin. Kim sued the drug company Pfizer for wrongful death, later settling out of court. Pfizer did not admit liability. Since Woody's death 20 years ago, Kim has become a committed advocate for safer medication. She campaigned for stronger safety warnings to be put on SSRI drugs, and in 2004 and 2006, labelling in the US was changed to include a boxed warning regarding the risk of suicidality in young adults. Today, Kim is a consumer representative on the FDA Psychopharmacologic Advisory Board Committee, which recommends whether a new drug should be approved or not. This gives her access to detailed information about medications. And Kim argues that safety is not given a high enough priority by the FDA, or to give it its full name, the Food and Drug Administration, and reveals why she thinks this has to change. But before we get to the interview with Kim, a brief request from me. If you enjoy this podcast and would like to leave a review on Spotify or Apple, that would be much appreciated. It really helps. You can also become a paid supporter of the podcast at patreon.com slash tell you, or via PayPal on my website, whatyourgpdoesnttellyou.com. A huge amount of work goes into both the research and production of this podcast, so even a small amount of money makes a huge difference. And you can find out more information about the pod on my website, where you can sign up for the podcast mailing list, follow me on Twitter at Liz C. Tucker, and on my Substack account, liz.tucker.substack.com. Many thanks. And now back to Kim's interview. Kim Watsack is a co-founder of Woody Matters, a non-profit dedicated to advocating for a stronger FDA and drug safety system. She's on the board of directors of National Physicians Alliance and MISSD. MISSD stands for Medication-Induced Suicide Prevention in Memory of Stuart Dolan. And Kim is also an active member of the DC-based Patient, Consumer and Public Health Coalition that aims to ensure that the voice of non-conflicted patients and consumers is represented in healthcare and FDA-related legislative issues. Here's her interview. So, Kim, thanks so much for joining the podcast today. Thanks for having me. So, Kim, you're not a doctor, you're not a lawyer, but you have a very personal reason for being what you've called an accidental advocate. And that stems from when your husband, Woody, was prescribed Soloft, which is one of the trade names of the antidepressant Cetralin. Can you explain what happened? Sure. Well, as you said, I like to call myself an accidental advocate. I never set out to do this work. And unfortunately, sometimes our greatest purposes choose us. My husband, Woody, we were married almost 10 years, a full of life guy, love life. We had a great marriage. He had just started his dream job with a startup company and was having trouble sleeping. So he went into his doctor, his GP, who he's seen for years, and he had the ultimate trust for his doctor. 
came home with a three-week sample pack of Zoloft. I happened to be out of the country the first three weeks he was on the drug. I was in New Zealand on an advertising shoot. That's my background professionally. And so I was not there to see anything when Woody started the, the antidepressant. I didn't even know that it was an antidepressant. I don't think I knew much about it. I don't think I even questioned anything. But anyway, so I come back from New Zealand. I was excited to see him. And I'll never forget what happened. He came through the back door, was in a blue dress shirt with a white undershirt underneath, completely drenched through, bawling, crying, dropped his bag, fell to the floor in a fetal position on our kitchen floor. And he kept going like, damn, I don't know what's happening to me. My head's outside my body. You got to help me. And he kept going like this and rocking back and forth. I had never seen that kind of behavior from him. Calmed him down. We did breathing. He called his doctor and the doctor said, you got to give the drug four to six weeks to kick in. And so every day, the next week of Woody's life, Woody came home and he was going to beat this feeling in his head. Everything was beat this feeling in his head. And during this time, he was still running. He was a big runner. And I remember him saying, Kim, I don't know what's going on, but I can't do my 10, 12 miles. I can do three miles. And just to be clear, at this point, his doctor had not given any advice about potential side effects. I mean, there was nothing. He didn't say anything like, you know, you need to be watched, monitored, anything changing, like behavioral things. And then when Woody had that experience of head outside the body, the doctor didn't even see that as a possible link to the the drug. He just told him because it's what the pharmaceutical companies were saying. And if you look at all the advertising and whatnot, it said you need to give these drugs four to six weeks to, to kick in. And so that was the advice that he got. We never had any warning. And what did you think was going on? I remember even that last week, I would ask him, I'm like, do you think you need to quit your job? Like, do you think it's too much stress? You know, I'm thinking it's the job that's maybe causing this. I mean, I didn't even at all question the drug at the time. I ended up going out of town, this time in Detroit. It was our big time, busy time at work. I did all the BMW advertising. I didn't think anything of leaving. We talked all the time, several times during the day. But on August 6th, it was a Tuesday. And I remember calling in the morning and I hadn't heard from Woody. And then I kept calling him and calling him. And and it wasn't until I called my home answering machine that I got this message that was from one of his new business partners saying, hey, Tim, that was his real name, Tim. Uh, Tim, where are you? We've got this huge uh, meeting tomorrow with Target and you're not here. And so I was like, wait, that's really odd. Like that is not Woody at all. He's super uber responsible. So that was kind of the point where I called my dad and my parents, you know, live a couple miles away and asked if they would just go check on Woody because I thought maybe he hit his head. So I'm still in the studio in Detroit and I get a call around nine o'clock my time. And my dad's like, it's bad. He's hanging. I'm like, what? What do you mean Woody's dead? I'm so sorry, Kim. Unimaginably awful. Yeah, it was. I couldn't even wrap my head around that most horrific call. And no one should ever get that call or ever see what my dad had to see. 
it made no sense. And I remember walking out and I like was screaming. And eventually the coroner called me in Detroit and asked me if my husband was on any medication. And I said, uh, you know, I didn't really, I go, yeah, I think there was one thing. And she goes, oh, there's a bottle of Zoloft sitting on the kitchen counter. And I said, yeah, that's it. And she proceeded to say, we're going to take it with us. And then the front page of our local newspaper, ironically, also had an article the exact same day that said the UK finds link between antidepressants and suicide in teens. That literally happened the night Woody was found. And then meanwhile, my brother-in-law goes and Googles Zoloft and suicide and had no idea all the stuff that came up and that the FDA held hearings in 1991 when it was just Prozac on the market. I've just got their quote here. They said, there was no credible evidence of a causal link between the use of antidepressant drugs, including Prozac, and suicidality or violent behavior. Yep, that was in 1991. And then if you actually go and look at the monies. Can you explain what you mean by that, Kim? So when you have monies that go to either the individual or the institution, you don't want to speak against something when the money has come to you or it's part of your the system. So you're suggesting that of those speakers, some of those would have been on consultancy deals with pharmaceutical companies, which you're arguing would have made them more inclined to give a positive perspective. Right. Basically, what is known as key opinion leaders. Exactly. Of course, they would argue that, yes, they work as a consultant for these companies, but actually they're capable of independent thought. I've heard that exact argument for years. They've done studies that my peers take money. I know that they get biased, but I'm not biased. Fast forward. Now we're 2003. So Kim, this is the year that Woody died. Yeah, we were completely blindsided. And I have to believe that at that time, the doctor was also blindsided by what was known about these medications at that time. So we never questioned the drug. FDA approved and sold and advertised on television in the States as safe and effective. And earlier this month, it was actually the 20-year anniversary of Woody's death. Yeah. Really, I didn't want anything other than to celebrate his life for this 20-year anniversary. And I was like, wow, you know, a lot has happened since. And it gets me like pretty um, emotional. So he literally only, the only thing he put in his body, milk, orange juice, tea. He didn't drink coffee because, you know, the caffeine affected him. And I can't even imagine what was happening to this poor guy trying to figure it out, like thinking it's something about him. Eventually, the warnings did get placed on suicide warnings. But in fact, I mean, there's a difference between the US on this and Europe, because the US, there are warnings for children and adolescents. And in Europe, there's a general warning, which although it says more common adolescents, it does cover all ages. But I don't think there's anything, is there, on the Cetralin labels in the States to cover adults? No. And so eventually in 2004, there were a lot of hearings at the FDA and families came out and experts, as well as congressional hearings that were happening where Congress was calling the FDA, um, as well as 
the drug company executives to task about all of these clinical trials that showed that the drugs didn't work for kids. And so that was a big deal when you look back at the footage, because I attended every one of those. I was on a plane almost every other week. So in 2004, eventually warnings did get placed on children up to 18. And then in 2006, it was extended to age 24. We were trying to pressure the FDA to put that warning on all ages. The reality is the drug doesn't know that you're 23 today and you're 24 tomorrow and 25 the next day, that it doesn't know the age. And truthfully, some of the documents that came out from my lawsuit, and it was from the Irish Medicine Board, it was all the Pfizer trials, the Irish Medicine Board had them look at suicidality in their clinical trials, that it's fascinating to see it was one to 30 days, 30 to one to 40 years old, and 50 milligrams were the highest percent of where they had suicidal ideation or suicide event. And all three of those were my husband. He was on 50 milligrams for a total of four weeks on the higher dose. And he was 37 years old. And it's still one of my missions is to get that warning extended to all ages. So there were big FDA hearings and in 2006 as well, that was going to be about adults. And Kim, your complaint about this hearing was that many experts who had safety concerns were not given enough time to speak. Right. People who had been working in the field of psychiatry and these psych medicines and have seen healthy people and adults, what can happen. You know, you would think that they would have been given time or a time slot at the FDA advisory committee, which is supposed to hear all evidence before, you know, making a decision. They were given three minutes like I was as a member of public during the open public hearing. So because of that, the day before the advisory committee, I held a press conference at the National Press Center, invited all the media to come hear these experts because they needed to get the full story of what is really going on. The FDA did extend it to 24. That was in 2006. Just got the British label and the European label, which says, if you're depressed or have anxiety disorders, you could sometimes have thoughts of harming or killing yourself. These may be increased when first starting antidepressants. And then it goes on to say, you may be more likely to think this if you're a young adult, but it does include all people, I think, in that statement. I mean, I'm happy to hear that. And then I hope that the doctors actually have this conversation with the person, the patient, as well as a caregiver so that they can watch. Because sometimes what was happening to Woody, he didn't know it was a drug. So that would have been a pretty important conversation that I should have this information too. And Kim, one of the symptoms Woody was experiencing, the sort of internal restlessness. Yeah. Ultimately, what that is called, uh, the side effect is akathisia, which is this internal agitation where he was like constantly moving the head outside the body. That akathisia, which is something that psychiatrists are well aware of it. And when we had the lawsuit, one of the documents came out of the lawsuit where Pfizer chief medical officer wrote about akathisia. This was an article published in the Journal of Psychopharmacology in 1998, entitled SSRI-Induced Extrapyramidal Side Effects 
and akathisia, implications for treatment. And so that was in a public journal. But what was not known to GPs is the memo that he sent out and said the attached journal article is not suitable for general practitioners, but may be of interest to neurologically inclined psychiatrists. In our country, the bulk of the drugs are written by our GPs and not by the psychiatrists. It's one of the things that I always try to tell the public that ask your doctor about akathisia. Ask them, do they know? And so when you go back to even your label, and when I remember during the time when they were having this discussion about putting a, a warning on these drugs in the US, there was always this assumption that, oh, well, if you're depressed, well, these drugs just make you feel better. And so you, you act on your ideas and you kill yourself. As a layperson sitting over here, I'm like, okay, that is even more reason to put a warning on these drugs. So if you're saying it's the drug that makes them feel good to act on thoughts, that's even more important to warn the public about what can happen and not always blame it back on depression or mental health because Woody, he got this for insomnia. He didn't have a history of depression. He didn't have a history of mental health issues. And if you go and look at some of the work that David Healy has done, he has done all this work around healthy volunteers. They were on the drug, but they, they weren't on the drug because they had depression or anxiety. So we were trying to like connect all these dots so that all ages would be put on that warning. But like I said, to this day, there isn't all ages in the US. And I guess for any drug, when you go in to see your GP, the first question you should ask when he or she prescribes it is, what are the potential side effects? Absolutely. I think that is a really important conversation. And I even look back at, you know, Woody, he should have been even given that drug. You know, I think there should have been a conversation a little bit more of like, okay, you just started a new job. Like there might've been other type remedies, but, you know, I think at that time, and if you look at all the advertising campaigns that were happening, these were all the big drugs on the market, the Zoloft, Paxil, and Prozac. If you look at the advertising, the Zoloft was almost looked like an M&M, benign candy. You know, are you nervous in a group of people? You may have social anxiety disorder and only your doctor can tell. And so people would go to their doctor. And I know when people come here, they always comment about our drug ads. Was there only the US and New Zealand where you're legally allowed to advertise to the public? Exactly. So it's only two countries in the world that you can allow drug ads. And I know they've tried many times over in your country, even questioning some of those things, you know, and asking for informed consent. Like that's really about informed consent, right? Like knowing what are the potential side effects. But if your doctors aren't aware or they don't believe, that there is an issue. You know, I still hear doctors that will tell me, oh, they just have to do that's just legal or that's only for kids. And so I think there's still a lot of education, even for GPs that don't necessarily think it's an issue with adults. You know, I would think you would want to make sure that you're given the best information to your patients. Well, I've certainly had people 
say to me recently that they've been prescribed sertraline. And obviously, each patient has to decide whether for them, the benefits outweigh the risks. But they said that their GP didn't highlight any of the potential side effects. So I think it is still happening. Yeah. Why I think this show is really, really important is I think back to you know 2003 when Woody got put on this drug. I had no idea that in 1991, there were big hearings on Prozac. I had no idea. I was like in high school or college, you know, so that wasn't even in my realm of thinking. And so I think now, you know, because I was super active and very involved in the warnings at the FDA and in Congress, working with them with their House Energy and Commerce investigations, that it was so part of my life. So I'm always thinking, well, of course, you know about it, right? And then I think about the young parents, the people today, and especially after the last couple of years that we've lived in the pandemic, you know, mental health is a epidemic now. So I think it's a constant reminder that these are serious mind altering drugs that we should be aware of. You know, I get contacted all the time. I just got contacted by a mother of a 12 year old daughter who just got put on Zoloft, but in conjunction with trazodone, Abilify and antihistamine. And she was noticing side effects I mean, I was shocked at how many medications that she was on. And what the clinical evidence is for children taking those drugs as well, which is the other issue. Well, and even what clinical evidence is there really for adults and these multi-polypharmacy approaches? You know, it's the, here, try this, try this. Oh, this isn't working? Well, let's put this on. And then if you look at like Abilify, it's an antipsychotic that was originally approved for schizophrenia. And it did get eventually approval. If you've been on two or more antidepressants and they don't work, you can throw this into the mix. So, you know, there's a history that I think it's really important to do your work and research. I sit on the FDA Psychopharmalogic Advisory Board Committee as the consumer representative. And we should say this committee gives advice to the FDA on whether a drug should be approved or not. The advice isn't binding, but the FDA usually follow the advice. Exactly. It's an advisory committee of outside experts. So it's if there's an issue that they want to have a discussion around, whether it's a new drug that's coming to the market and they might want to have a little bit more evidence or, you know, conversation around something. It's an interesting perspective sitting on this committee because I get to see all of the data that gets presented to us. It's about the evidence of benefit and it feels very benefit forward as opposed to where does the risks, where's the safety side of things. It's interesting to hear the presentations, you know, the the FDA's um, assessment, the companies, then there's the open public hearing. And that's where I've learned a lot of things. Patient and disease organizations that come in and speak, and they mostly will go along with the new drugs. But then when you look at the fundings that they get, where does their funding come? The FDA usually puts a couple questions out, and we get to discuss it, and then we get to vote. After the vote is done, we each get to give an explanation of why we voted the way we do. 
And what is really interesting is that you might have somebody who said, I voted yes for the product because I think we need to give patients more, but I didn't think safety was really there. It's funny because they'll bring up safety issues, but they still voted for it. And then I might come along and say, I voted no for the exact reason he voted yes, which is I don't think safety is there and we don't know what's going to happen. A lot of these clinical trials that are coming to the FDA is using a unmet need or some kind of fast tracking, which allows a different standard on the clinical trials. So the standard requirement for getting a drug approved is two double-blind randomized trials, and they need to show that the new medication has a statistically significant benefit over the placebo. But that's not the case, Kim, for a fast-track drug. Right. Now, if it's breakthrough therapy designation, you might only need one clinical trial and then maybe some observation studies. And so the evidence is a lot less until millions of people take something, you might not even see the safety emerge. So I come from the safety perspective. I will always come from the safety perspective. I think my background being a marketer, I have spent my entire career, that's how I actually make a living is in marketing and advertising. And so it's very different than my advocacy work. So it kind of is a lens into how I see things. You know, it's about getting it on the market But also, I mean, there's a conflict of interest, I think, in terms of the fact that the trials are funded by the manufacturer. And you can understand if I'm a manufacturer and I have a product, obviously, I believe in the product. Otherwise, I wouldn't be trying to bring it to market. But obviously, I have an interest in bringing it to market. Right. Historically, if you go back to the late 80s and 90s, trials were run independently. That happens less and less. To me, that's been the biggest change in drug regulation. Yeah, there's this idea, this misconception from the public, at least, that the FDA does the trials or that somebody else does the trials. But the ones that are getting approved by regulatory, those are actually being done by the companies. I started looking at the idea of the safety side of things right at the FDA. The regulators, the same people that are approving the drugs are the ones responsible for safety at the FDA. It should be separate funny listening to safety issues right now to do with even like the last couple of years with the COVID vaccines and everybody's like, oh, the VAERS system or the MedWatch and and MedWatch is for drugs and the VAERS is for vaccines. And what we hear is like, oh, that's an old system. You can't trust it. I'm like, I've been hearing that same thing for 20 years. And if I was a company and that was my business, we would fix that problem. The system really isn't set up for safety in these drugs that get on the market. But is there also a pressure, particularly if there's an unmet need? You can also understand it from patient groups. If you've got a child who's desperately ill and then Mm -hmm. potentially a drug arrives and it sounds like it might help. I think under those circumstances, people are prepared to take greater risks than they would otherwise do. Absolutely. I think that's that whole like risk benefit. But one thing that people don't understand is even for those patients, there is a pathway instead of getting it approved or getting it authorized, that it's the expanded access pathway or compassionate use. So that is a way, but we don't really talk about that. 
Doesn't this sort of hark back to the AIDS drugs when there was a criticism mm-hmm. of the regulatory agencies being too slow so that then it was, oh, hey, we've got to speed up. And your argument is they've gone too far in the other direction. Right. And so funny, I know I keep referencing back to the documents that came out of my lawsuit, but one of the documents that came out of the lawsuit was during the Pfizer approval, and it was from the FDA, and it was talking about this pressure from society, unless there's a significant sea of change towards society's view towards the regulatory agency, we're going to come under attack years from now for not being as demanding as we should be for establishing the efficacy of antidepressant products. That was as a result of the AIDS pressure from the public. When you see it in black and white, their words, not mine, uh, it's very powerful because you know that there was pressure. And, you know, I have worked with some of the people that have been involved in the ACT UP cause with the AIDS, and they will say that they now see that some of that pressure has actually been part of the problem in how we've done all these expedited approvals that Congress in the U.S. has put in place. If there's truly an unmet need, that is one thing. And Kim, one of the drugs that you've seen go through the fast track process is a drug called Uplacid. Yeah, it's a Parkinson's psychosis drug. There was no, no drug on the market that could deal with the Parkinson's psychosis. The drugs that they use to treat Parkinson's can cause some of the psychosis. So this is a drug to treat the side effects effectively of another drug. Yeah, exactly. When I went to listen to, again, my mind thinks like a marketer, right? And so when I take on new clients, I have to go and get a, do a full 100, 360 degree review of a company, of a potential client. So I always love, in addition to seeing the data um, for like my drugs that we're reviewing, I like to go do some research on the company. And I want to go listen to the CEO calls. I want to go listen to what Wall Street has to say about this drug. So this Parkinson's psychosis drug, Nuplazid, it was a breakthrough therapy for an unmet need. They had tried to get it approved two times before um, using the regular pathway and failed. And the regular pathway would require them to have two positive trials. Yes, exactly. And so when I went to go listen to what Wall Street said, they said this was a make or break for this biotech company. So make or break for um, approval. And then when you looked at it, the Wall Street analysts, when you after the call, there were a lot of people talking about this had a potential to be a two to three billion dollar off-label drug a year. So an approved drug can also be prescribed by doctors for other medical conditions. And this is something that's called off-label prescribing. Right. So if the drug Uplacid was approved for Parkinson's psychosis, then there was potential for it to be prescribed for other conditions too. Right. Now in this committee meeting, Kim, you said that you had safety concerns about the drug. However, the committee voted 12 to 2 in favour of approving it. Two people that voted no on that drug was myself and the woman who lived with Parkinson's. So immediately, all the media ran it as this is a breakthrough for Parkinson's patients, Parkinson's groups that were there, you know, all promoting it, who also all took money from the company making this drug. So there was a conflict there 
and that they're promoting it. But at the same time, I understand it that for a patient who doesn't want an option, right? Two years later, CNN contacted me because there were deaths that were being reported by families who are now using this drug. And they wanted to know why I voted no. And I said, it's too bad you didn't, you should have asked me two years earlier, but you know, I gave them my, you know, perspective. We as society have been kind of trained to want the latest technology, want the latest television. I think that also infiltrates into how society looks at even medications. You know, there's some that are good, but we have to remember things might not emerge until years on the market. If you're somebody who is on your last like option, you're going to be willing to take a risk. It might be the difference between life and death. But if you're not, that risk benefit equation for everybody is different. And I think that's really important. And your concern with the speeding up process in this particular case, there's one six-week trial which starts with, I think, 199 people and starts with 95 people on the study drug. So those 95 people, that's the sole total in terms of yeah. the basis that this drug is approved. That's what I think people have to really go back and look at. What was the total number of people in that trial? Once the drug came to market, there were a number of instances reported to the FDA, around 700 deaths. However, the FDA did carry out review, and and I've got their quote here. They said, did not identify any new or unexpected safety findings with new passage or findings that are inconsistent with the established safety profile currently described in the drug label. Well, I feel like that's a very typical of what we see behavior at the FDA. Those quotes, you could almost go back and look at the antidepressants. We didn't see any evidence, right? And it took all these years before the warning. And the company, Acadia, said that there were a number of reasons for the higher volume of death reports. Parkinson's disease psychosis is more commonly seen in patients in the most advanced stages of the disease, meaning that they are already at a higher risk of death. It also stated that the benefit-risk assessment of new placid remains unchanged and said it carefully monitors and regularly analyzes safety reports from both ongoing studies and adverse event reports. And the company has noted that since the drug's approval, two studies that it conducted with a total of more than 300 patients with Alzheimer's did not find a difference in the number of deaths reported between New Placid and the placebo. Right. And another drug that I don't think a lot of people are aware of, the FDA removed a black box warning in an unprecedented move. And just to add, a black box warning is the most serious safety warning that can be put on a drug label. Right. Chantex? Do you, you call it Champex? It's a drug to help people stop smoking. Right. That drug, when it first came out, it did not have warnings on it for neuropsychiatric and violence and suicide, etc. Eventually, it happened to be like 2,700 lawsuits that went through court. The FDA eventually did put a black box warning. I think Pfizer settled nearly 3,000 lawsuits for around 300 million. Yes, exactly. I knew some of the people who had the lawsuits who had big advocacy organizations. As part of the settlement, the victims could never tell their story in public. 
and people who had um, advocacy websites, they had to take their websites down. And after all of that, and even the experts that were the ones reviewing the data, who were Thomas Moore um, with Institute for Safe Medication Practices and Dr. Glenn Mullen um, out of Harvard, they were the experts. This data needed to be out in the public, but they couldn't because it was all settled. And Pfizer went back to the FDA and said, we did a new study over in the UK, the Eagle study. We should take the black box warning off. The FDA has never done that before. So this removed the black box warning for neuropsychiatric issues, including suicidal thoughts, self-harm, psychosis, hallucinations, and homicidal thoughts for this drug known as Chantix in the US and Champix in the UK. And its generic name is Vernicline. Right. I get a call from the FDA a couple days before the meeting saying that it had come to their attention that I had an intellectual bias. What did they mean by that, do you think? They said, well, you know, it came to our attention. You had a lawsuit against Pfizer. I'm like, this is a big deal of removing a black box warning. So ultimately, I did get removed. I couldn't be on the committee that day. I asked if I could still because I missed the open public hearing participation, because, you know, you have to register to be a, um, a speaker. So I asked if I could still, because I obviously was thought I was going to be on the committee, I asked if I could still come out to D.C. and be one of the speakers. They hemmed and hawed, and then they eventually said I could. But they said they were going to start the, the meeting with saying that you're going to hear from one of our advisory board members later today who was recused from serving because she has an intellectual bias. The only people that have been removed from committees at the FDA is myself and Sid Wolf, who was the guy, he helped start Public Citizen, which is a watchdog group that looks at FDA and pharmaceutical. I always tell everybody, don't believe what I say, do your own research. But you know, a lot of the people who are on these committees also have an intellectual bias. If they work for academia, as researchers, they have to get monies. It might self-censor themselves from saying what they want to say because they there might be backlash down the road. So your argument is we've all got bias, but the FDA committee... We all have. ...are biased in one direction, not the other. Right, exactly. And I think there was an article about intellectual bias that actually ran in the British Medical Journal that was written about this situation, talking about what happened. Um, with me, but also with Sid Wolf. Kim, can I just go back to the court case that you initiated after Woody's tragic death? You ended up, in fact, settling and not going through the court process. Is that a frustration, do you think, that that's what most people end up doing? Yeah. So I had no idea what I was getting myself into. My lawyers, they're out in LA, Bomb Headland. I remember telling my lawyers, I go, it's not about money. Once we start seeing the documents and I have binders worth, when you see it black and white in their letters, what they knew, and it's not about what I say, I just have the dead husband. Pfizer was getting a lot of these lawsuits thrown out from court by using an FDA preemption, which basically says that even if the company wanted to warn, if the FDA didn't see the evidence, that you couldn't put a warning on. If the FDA has approved the drug, therefore they've gone through a process, Yep. therefore you can't take action against the company. Yeah, so it was the preemption brief. This was kind of the new strategy. 
Now, this idea of preemption, generic drugs in the US, preemption is part of it, meaning you can't really hold generic manufacturers accountable for any harms. And it's very, very, very hard to hold um, drug companies accountable. So we beat preemption twice in my case. So having defeated preemption, Woody's case was really the start of other courts that were able to use the arguments that the judge in our case that denied Pfizer preemption, and that's helped other cases. This brief is still being used. I had a friend who ended up going all the way through court, got a jury verdict for her husband's death, and ultimately it went up to the appeals and it got thrown out because of preemption. So despite the fact that you'd won on this key point of preemption, you did end up settling and not going all the way. Why was that? I was able to get all the things that I wanted, like all the documents. So for me, what was really important is telling my story and getting the documents. And so it got resolved. And they had me you know, under oath for nine hours. They didn't want to know anything about Woody. They wanted to know who knew what in D.C., they wanted to know, how did we get Senator Grassley involved? How did I get the Minnesota Attorney General involved? And finally, I remember looking at them and I go, can I ask you a question? And they're like, no, we're the ones asking the question. I go, help me understand, like, why are you asking me these questions? None of these have anything to do with my husband being dead. Clearly, you'd been very effective at getting influential voices to support your case. Yeah, a lot of these things, I have to say, like how we got the Minnesota Attorney General to join in and write an amicus brief in support of my case, basically saying states have rights because federal law is the lowest bar and states, they can have a higher bar set for safety standards, et cetera, the way our legal system works. And how that happened, I couldn't have created it. We were supposed to meet with the governor's office. And all of a sudden, out of nowhere, here comes the Attorney General walking into the state office to pick up something and the security guard let us in. So it was like magic. Oh, there's the attorney general. Would you ever get involved? He goes, oh my gosh, yeah, I'll get involved. So that's how it happened. So when Pfizer was asking me these questions, I'm like, I don't know. How did you get Senator Grassley involved? Well, we were at the airport at 5 a.m. and there was Senator Grassley sitting. And so we ended up having a full 10 minute conversation telling him what was happening well, I'm sure you were a pretty formidable opponent, Kim. This should never have happened. And if the right thing was done at the beginning, even just warning, this isn't what I wanted to do with my life. You know, I had other plans. And so had they done the right thing in the beginning, this stirred up something in me. It's because I don't want what happened to us to happen to another family. And how many times I hear, how come we didn't know? Yeah. Yeah. It must take a real emotional toll. This because obviously you're talking to me today and it's a story you've had to tell various other people. Anybody I know who's had to go through one of these court cases, whether they settle or not, it's both physically and also emotionally grueling. Yeah. It's all you can think about. It's being attacked. You want your life back whatever that life is. It's not the same life I had before. It was interesting finding out that my neighbors got calls from somebody asking about Woody. 
they had called my therapist, my grief counselor, and wanted all my notes. Thankfully, she called me and I called my lawyers and my lawyers are like, no, everything has to go through us. It is not a fun experience, but my faith is huge. I had amazing lawyers and friends that knew that it was about getting the stuff out in DC and getting the warnings and now using all of it to kind of tell a story. You know, I go out and lobby a lot and try to get the Congress to understand. I didn't know, and I don't think a lot of people know, how much our political process has impacted the way pharmaceuticals are approved and used. It's so tied into our political system. And so I'm trying to share my experience with people like you. And I would go to a lot of conferences because I love critical thinking and just different ways of thinking. And maybe not everything is always about approvals and getting more stuff on the market. Maybe it's about safety or, you know, whatever. And so I went to conferences like preventing overdiagnosis. That was something that was put on by the BMJ spoke there, but also been a participant for years before. There was one selling sickness conference that was put on by the Dutch government. Almost every example of selling sickness came from the U.S. and there was only 10 of us from the U.S. You know, I was trying to get the organizers to bring it to the U.S. and they said it wasn't their market. So eventually I brought it to the U.S. and did a conference called Selling Sickness. That was an opportunity to meet people who think differently, who are just critically asking different questions. And I think it's really important because at the end of the day, you and I, the average person, we just go to the doctor and we trust that the pill that we're getting is safe and effective and don't understand this whole, as I call the spider web, that's behind the little pills that we take. Just going back, Kim, to when Pfizer asked your therapist for your notes and your grief counsellor. What was their response when your lawyers contacted them about that? They brought it to the court, to the judge. What was the judge's response? Oh, I mean, I think they had so many of these with the judge. And he was the chief justice. I think think he was just done. Your judge matters. Fortunately, worked for us. He was a big states' rights guy. States have rights. And so I think that worked. The other thing that strikes me when I look back at the coverage surrounding Woody's death was the level of press coverage there was. Because one thing I think has changed, and in fact, a reason that I set up this podcast to begin with was because I think more and more medical journalism is just becoming medical PR. Yeah. And I said we had the courts and Congress. Media was also a huge part of getting the message out. And Woody's story was covered by a lot of the mainstream media. And I worked with them a lot. They always wanted the fair and balance, which they should. You know, mine was still the ugly side of it. It was mostly positive, but they threw in the safety side of things. When I look at what's happened today, the idea of questioning and reporting this kind of fair and balance, it seems like it's gone, like with the mainstream media and has become almost like an extension of the press departments of these companies. It's just no critical thinking of asking questions. You know, I'm still glad to see the British Medical Journal at least publishes some of the more critical um, pieces. It doesn't run so many papers on drug trials. So it's less 
beholden to pharmaceutical money, I think. So I think that it's, of all the medical journals, the one that's likely to be the most critical. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's a really good point because it doesn't have the ties. And I keep asking my friends that I know in the media, like, where are you? The London Times ran a front page story. I tweeted about this actually on the weight loss drug Wachovi. At no point did they mention who had funded the trial, which was obviously the manufacturer. That's not a small fact to leave out. Right. And when you think about it, front page of the London Times, that's a big, I mean, if you were to buy an ad in London Times, you know how much money that is. So, Kim, what needs to change? I would love to figure out how to get pharma money out at universities in every aspect of, you know, but the reality is it is so deeply entrenched. If you're the company, you're like, well, we want to run the trial, but there has to be a system that we can have independence and transparency, accountability as well. You know, even with the vaccine, and I've not been a big, you know, vaccines have not been my area of expertise. Like, why did we ever give these companies complete legal immunity in 1986? But I really think as consumers and patients, we need to take it in control here and really not give our power away. Question and be partners. Ultimately, I need my doctors. I mean, I was shocked that doctors in med school don't learn about how the FDA works. All of these things that could shape the career that they're going into. And I was invited just this year, which I was really happy the school down in St. Louis, Washington University Med School, I was able to give a presentation on selling sickness, the spider web. Because I think if we can inform our doctors, then they become better too. And I think together, if patients are more informed and educated and doctors and make a more true informed consent and shared decision-making, we hear that word shared decision-making. But if we don't have all the information, it's not really shared. So I think that would be something I would love to change as well. Well, Kim, thanks so much for talking today and for sharing your really personal perspective. Thank you so much. Oh, thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Hope you enjoyed the latest episode of the podcast. The podcast will now be taking a short break and we'll be back on the 14th of November. Many thanks for listening. Bye for now.